And where is your car? <coughs> oh, I don't, I don't believe in time. And the world here. and I got to pace this. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, you know. I could have worn mine, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I chose second, Peter, not because I knew anything about it, or even because I was particularly interested in it, but this was a good weekend for me. <laughs> and I had looked through it briefly, and you've seen this lovely listing of kind of spiritual get fruits of the spirit. I thought, oh, anybody can make a lesson out of that. What I didn't look carefully for was chapter two, which is just absolutely a horror to teach. And so I'm going to throw it out there with lots of inadequate explanation. Now, Patrick, when I saw this series advertised, it's something about bats in the Bible, and I thought you were going to discover all kinds of little interesting, obscure things that were uh -huh. tantalizing that uh -huh. we didn't know was in the Bible. Well, there is one that I should have known was in Second Peter, and you will see how poor my Bible scholarship is without just now remembering it. I, surely I have known it and forgotten it a time or two, but... Peter talks about how difficult Paul is to understand. Right. And we can all amen that one. <laughs> okay. Um, I want you to imagine one of two categories. And looking at the demographic, you're going to be probably very heavy in one category. I want you to either think of yourself as the writer or the recipient of a letter that someone writes late in life, maybe as their last letter, what might I write to leave to my grandchildren? So if you're old enough to think about those things, think of that. Maybe some of the rest of you need to think, what would be in a letter that you might receive from someone that loved you, that cared about you, and it was going to say something that they wanted to be sure that you remember. Okay, so we're going to spend about three or four minutes thinking about that. I want you to turn to somebody close to you. Okay, there's no place where it's more important to be inclusive than church, okay? So look around. If you're talking to someone and there's somebody close that's not talking to somebody, you grab them, okay? Everybody is going to feel a part and connected. So talk about what kinds of things might be in that letter. You can talk about very specific things or you can talk about kind of categories of things. But what would be in a end of life, this is what I'm going to leave with you letter. Okay? I will never put anybody on the spot. That's just kind of my rule. So I'm not going to call anybody. I'm not going to make this part of the room or this group. But would you share something of what you... I heard some wonderful things. I, I can pick up a few things that I heard. But share, what was something that you mentioned that you thought would be in such a letter? Love. Love. Share your struggles and how you got through them. <laughs> yeah, you had it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this writing cursive, no one's gonna do it. <laughs> I did it. I did it. Okay. How to survive? What else? Well, you were thankful for about them. Okay. What are the blessings? 
Maybe your apologies and regrets. Ah. Or confessions. Mm-hmm. Okay. What else? Sharing what's important in life. What's important. What you post at their values and, and focus in life would be based on what's important. Values. Okay. Encouraging them to not take things for granted. Encouragement. Anything else? I told our little group that um, we were at a 90th birthday party yesterday, and the man read off uh, to all of his like hundreds of people. I have, uh, well, he said that I have no greater joy than to know my children are walking in the truth. So can I use that as affirmation? Yeah. Okay. And priorities, I guess, like Patricia. Yes. No, nothing, nothing counts next to Jesus. It's all rubbish. What's pro priorities? Yes. Maybe what, what I see in them that's special and... Oh, um, I like that. A specific encouragement with their gifts in mind. Okay. One more. Oh. Hope. Oh, very appropriate. Have you been to first service? <laughs> okay. Well, and in fact, that is what Peter does. Um, I want to kind of briefly go through the letter, and I want you to see these pieces. Um, I think it's very clear um, that this is what he's doing. Um, history tells us that this was written late, in his life. I think it's reasonable to think that he may feel, maybe he's even been told by God, I don't know, but certainly legitimately feels that this may be his last communication. This is his second letter um, to the same group of people, these are believers, people that he's loved, that he has nurtured in the faith. Um, now I do need to tell you, I'm not a Bible scholar. There apparently is some argument if this is really written by Peter. It says it's written by Peter, but apparently, because Second Peter is different than First Peter. Second Peter is frankly harsher than First Peter, and so some people think mm, maybe not the same writer. I'm going to assume that it is. Um, we've talked about encouragement, love, advice, warning. He has lots of warning, and I think that's in the same area as priorities or the, the struggles that I've It's not so much the struggles he's had, but it's the struggles he's seen and the fears that he has. And frankly, I guess I'm the very oldest. Oh, my husband's older than I am. <laughs> With the old people in the room. And I do think the older you get, the more you tend to be a little fearful about things and that you want to warn. You see problems that could arise and that could come. And my family gives me a really hard time about all the things that I can identify that could be dangerous. And so, um, but I, I think this is a little bit of a, a, a part of that stage of life. In verse 12 of the first chapter, he says, I know you know these things but I want to remind you, I want to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of a body. And I don't think that we would use that, that analogy, but how appropriate when they were tent makers, that they saw their bodies as a tent, and I love that, the idea of journeying along, at some point you're able to leave that. And I will make every effort 
to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. I am at the stage of life that I am thinking about what will my children and my grandchildren remember. And I'm probably done with the kids. They're not gonna, I'm not gonna change their memories of me, but my grandchildren are still forming memories of me. And so I'm very aware of what do I want them to remember. Okay, and then he starts with affirmation. Um, in verse 1, he's writing to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. And to me, there's something very inclusive about that. He's, I mean, it, he was an apostle. He sat by Jesus. He, he was there at all the events. He preached the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. He certainly could have seen his faith and his position as a little higher than anybody else. But it says your faith is as precious as ours. And I, I find that very tender. And then he goes on to say, you've got all that you need. This is that encouragement. This is the hope. You've got what you need. He's given it to you. He has given, in verse 4, first chapter, He has given us His great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the world. And I, if I'm giving you this up in two small pieces, I'm sorry, I won't lose the whole chapter, but I love the participate. I think that is God's invitation to us, that we participate with Him. Um, and I think that is a reference to God's Spirit in us. And, um, and then He says, and you participate in God's nature, and then He lists the fruits of the Spirit. And He talks about adding. You start with knowledge, and you add this, and you add that, and you add the other. Now, I confess to you that I, as a teenager, kind of thought you got to this point of knowledge and faith, and maybe you weren't there at 16, but surely you ought to be there by 25, and that's kind of where you are, and you just kind of went on from there. And I don't think anything could be further from the truth. I think that if I'm not different today than I was 10 years ago, if I am not more patient, and that's a real issue for me, if I am not more patient today than I was 10 years ago, then something's wrong. I am to continually <coughs> change and continually grow. And when I am content with where I am, there ought to be all sorts of red flags going off because I am created to grow and to change. And does that mean I'm going to see the world differently now than I saw it 20 years ago? Yes. So I will warn you, it's best not to be too smug about what you think because you're probably going to change your mind. Okay. Then in verse 16, he kind of establishes some credibility. He says, we didn't make up these stories. I can see in a letter my saying, I have loved you all of your life. I have a little bit of a right to speak into your life. I have loved you. And he's saying, not just that I've loved you, 
But I didn't make this up. I saw it. He saw the baptism. But the one he references is the transfiguration. He says, I saw him change. I heard God's voice say, this is my son whom I love. And then he references that all of this is the fulfillment of Scripture. He's being very careful to say, this is not just Peter talking. This is not just some idea I've come up with. But I saw it happen. And it is verified through Scripture. And then he starts in a really tough chapter. He says, um, there were, kind of it's a segue, there were first false prophets back in the Old Testament, and there are false prophets now. And this apparently is being written to the church. So this is not people from the outside, but people from the inside. And they're awful. I'm not going to read all of chapter 2 for you, but these false teachers are, they're villains. They are deliberately deceiving. They preying on new converts. Shameful ways. Greed. Sexually immoral. Bold and arrogant. They slander celestial beings. He calls them brute beasts. people in my life. I've had people in my life that I think were teaching wrong. But I have assumed they were sincere. They were not malicious. What he describes is malicious. And so I'll admit I kind of wondered, am I missing them? Am I labeling them too generously? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Then he goes on to talk about God has, does not spare the world. He did not spare the ancient world from punishment of evildoers. And he talks about, oh, the first one is really difficult about, um, he did not spare angels when they sinned. He sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. That seems to be the reference to the men, Mary, um, having sex with the angels and producing this is back in Noah. This is also reported in another uh, book that was widely read among the Jews. There are several references to this. I don't have a good understanding of that. Um, he goes on, he talks about Noah being a righteous man and being spared um, when there was the devastation of punishment. He talks about Lot, which is such an interesting character to talk about. Um, Lot is very troubling to many of us, and, and yet Lot was faithful to leave. He, he followed God's instruction to leave. Um, I don't have a theology of hell. 
And this is vivid and terrifying. Um, I, um, I remember as a child, there were, it was very trendy to have these Judgment Day stories. I remember one vividly where everybody wakes up in the morning and, and you know, you're going out your door and getting in, in your car. And of course, back then it was the father was going in, in, in his car going to his job and wife was staying home to cook for the day. And, but the milkman, you don't know milkman, but milkman is <laughs> kind of deliver milk. Um, you know, the, the milkman is taken to be with God, but the garbage man's not, or maybe it's vice versa. It, but it was so rooted in fear. And I was fairly quick to not want that concept. Um, on the other hand, I'll be really honest, I, I have a feeling that I don't have quite enough tuned in to judgment day. Maybe I would live, I don't want to live in fear. But I do want to live in accountability. And I think that's what I'm going to pull from this chapter. I don't know about angels and dungeons. I, I, I just, I don't. Um, this kind of judgment is very difficult for me to reconcile with the God of love and grace. I'm much more comfortable with passages that talk about, like in Timothy, that he wants all men to be saved. But I think he's saying there are consequences to sin. And I I don't think I can be true to this and just dismiss that. Do I have disagreement? Anybody else like to wade into this difficult subject? Yes, ma'am. I don't know that I know anything, but my thought when I read some of this is we we talk there's often a talk of what our battle is. And it's not against the flesh and blood. It is against the powers that be. And so when I read this, I imagine God defeating evil and the the grand scheme of how we are deceived by evil, not necessarily because we are inherently evil, but because evil is around us. And I feel like this is a warning to say, pay attention to the things that are being your, to what is influencing you, what is causing you to move towards this lightness or towards this darkness. So to me, it's more of like a warning to all of us to be aware <coughs> that evil is a part of what we are dealing with. I think that's a wonderful observation. Thank you. Tell me again. Lynn. Lynn. Yes. I think going back to, you were saying how you don't really know that evil, you know, was that, I think that goes back, when I think of that, I think of the, uh, the wolf in sheep's clothing, where sometimes we can see someone, and because we want to believe the best in them, because we will that, we're, we are willing to be deceived, even self-deceived, um, and so I think it's good for us to always be vigilant, and always be testing, not just accepting what someone says as truth, we're really testing what someone says, and um, and that's that's a struggle for me. I would just want to accept what everyone says as truth and not challenge myself to what I really think. 
we've got to take on to where someone else thinks. I think it is so easy to get into some kind of, to, in, to rather than look at is this truth or is this false teaching, rather than let's say what their motives are. I don't think their motives are mine to judge, but I think you're absolutely right. It is my responsibility to compare this. Is this consistent with the teachings of God? Is this consistent with the life of Christ? Is this consistent with Scripture as a whole body? Yes. I think along the same lines, it is a warning in verse 21. He writes, it would be better to have never known the right way than to know it and turn away. So it does seem at one point they have been misled, whether they yes. chose that themselves or they themselves experienced false teaching. So as much as we want to be grounded in truth, and we do change and evolve over time, but just to always be listening to the Spirit and not popularity contest or what feels good or what is easy um, to really go back to the true character the true nature of God and I th I think that takes an intentional commitment to doing that but I think it also takes a heart that says I don't know that I have all the answers I, I think I, I will speak for myself personally but I think when I think I know something I'm less amenable to seeing how that needs to be a little deeper or a little more intentional or maybe even completely different from what I've been learning. Yes? I wonder uh, if you've heard this particular chapter and other places in the New Testament used like against people who are possibly teaching things that are just like different or maybe even difficult for us to hear and um, like they're, well, you're a false prophet or that's not true and I think I think maybe Peter's like telling us that like this is a little bit different than like just like tough teaching or teaching that we're not used to. This is like coming from people that are like bent on destruction and like trying to hurt people. Well, so and it's he, a really different. Thing. He makes more than one reference to their, which I find it's interesting. The two things he points out are greed and sexual immorality, and those are those are those so um, diametrically opposed right. to faith. Other? I'm sorry. So I switched to American Standard Version just to be uh -huh. a little bit more clear on some of this, but um, the word ungodly obviously is being brought up um, often, and it's saying that God persecutes the ungodly and but holds high those that follow faith and truly follow faith, not blindly follow such as um, for example, the one time that we see Jesus get just beside himself angry in the Bible is people misusing a church, so on and so forth. People that disrespect and slander God are the people that will be persecuted and put down. But then you take the people that hold God up high, they themselves would be held up high. So. And, and don't you think part of the intensity, what, what I even labeled as harshness, Again, if you'll think that this is, if in fact this is his last letter, he wants to be sure they get this. Mm -hmm. he, he's trying to protect them. He, he knows that they're going to be dangerous. He knows that they're going to be the wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and he's trying kind of for all times to say, be careful, watch out, don't, don't follow this. Okay.
Then in chapter 3, um, he says, again, I've written this as a reminder. Do you see? He knows they know these things. But it's, I think this has to do with priorities. Know that this is really important. Keep this on the front burner. Um, he says, scoffers will come. And they're going to say, really? Where is this second coming that he promised? That's, that's kind of at the heart of this. That um, you say he's God, you say he's resurrected, you say he went to heaven, and you say he's coming back, but when? And if they were feeling that within a lifetime, how easy is it for us to feel it? And again, I, I think what I'm wanting is not to live in fear of this. Maybe to live in loving expectation of this. But how I see that, how I hold that, I think will influence the choices that I make. Oh dear. <laughs> okay. Um, I have a very brief video that I'll put on. We may see Okay. At the, then he says a, a verse that we, we've often quoted. Don't forget, uh, with the, the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish. So this sounds a whole lot less harsh than what he's just said. He says, God's not in a hurry to do this because he wants, he wants all of us. He wants all of you to come to him. He's waiting. He's giving you a chance. He's giving you extra time. That is a concept that is easier for me to hold on to, easier to grasp. And then in the very last... He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. To him be glory as man and forever. Okay. Two thousand years ago. If Peter had been writing to us, I, mean, I, I think he's writing specifically knowing um, there's already the beginning of movements of people saying that Christ wasn't really human and he wasn't, he wasn't a real human body and, and therefore the body doesn't matter and so what the body does doesn't really matter. He knows those heresies are coming. Those are specific heresies that he's seeing the roots again. So what would he, what he say to our church? And there's clearly no right answer. <laughs> well, there may be right answers. I clearly have no, I don't know the right answer. So what would he say to all three? the letter be? Or what would the letter be to us, just as Christians in this day, this time, this place? I think he would affirm that we hold, we hold the faith that he holds. Our faith is precious. Our faith is important. What would he warn us of? I think he's saying, and to really boil down the whole book, and it still applies today, is live intentionally. Right? I mean, he talks about 
you know, the good side of our choices, the bad side of our choices, and the fact that, you know, all of it can be taken away in the blink of an eye. And I don't think it's necessarily a deal where he's saying, look at this person. I think it's more we see ourselves in it, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a call for us to to live every, not even every day intentionally, live every moment. Yes. And I thought back over this lesson, mm -hmm. maybe instead of spending any time on the chapter that's so harsh, I should have spent more time in the first chapter where he talks kind of about the, it's, it's, it's kind of a different listing of fruits of the Spirit, but he talks about adding on to this and adding on to this. And I, I, you know, that's kind of what he starts out with. And I think, I think there's a very strong message of how you live matters. The choices you make matter. They're important. Anything else? Yes. Uh, I still build on that idea. It's like you can. I think this church does a and, and modern church has done a good job of recognizing that everybody should come as you are to church and being a little less like oh well, you're that way and maybe we shouldn't associate. No, like come as you are. But I think what Second Peter does, or really all of Second Peter does, is but don't once you know. You can't go back. You can't be half in and half out. You can't. You've got to be in the world, but not like you, you've got to be changed and yes. let this change you and recognize that it's a hard path. Change is never easy. Change is never easy. And, and, and it's hard to hear because you're like, well, I'm not perfect, and I've got a long way to go. And I'm better than somebody I'm else. So I, yeah. Oh I'm yeah. A little slack over here. Oh I'm yeah. Do this. Yeah. Well, no. You don't. You've got to be changed. And you're so right, there is such a tension or balance in including, accepting, drawing in. We don't want to be judgmental. But in our effort not to be judgmental, we don't want to say everything's okay. We don't want to say that change and growth and intentionality and spiritual, I mean, goodness and mercy and self-control talks about those things. That's what we want to do. I fear he would mention greed. I admit to some considerable guilt and not necessarily acting on my guilt as I should. But I, we live in such a enormously affluent and I think I take that for granted. I mean, everybody around me lives that way, so so why not? And I, I have some angst personally about that. Okay, if you're not aware of this lovely Bible project that has these fabulous little videos, and we're going to see the one from Second Peter quickly. And if we run out of time, just go ahead. <laughs> Letter of Peter. It's addressed to the same network of churches as Peter's first letter, and is likely written from the same location in Rome. Peter's become aware of the fact that he's going to die soon, and the evidence that we have from early tradition was that Peter was executed by the Roman authorities during the reign of Emperor Nero. And so this letter acts as Peter's farewell speech. He begins by offering a final challenge, that Jesus' followers must be people who never stop 
growing. And then this is followed by two final warnings about a growing number of corrupt teachers who are leading Christians in these church communities astray. First, by their corrupt way of life, and second, by their distorted theology. Throughout the letter, Peter is countering accusations made by these teachers against himself and the other apostles. And Peter's goal is to restore confidence and order to these church communities. So Peter opens by reminding these churches that through Jesus, God has invited people to become a participant in his own divine nature. That is, to share in God's own eternal life and love, which is mind-blowing. And it requires a lifelong response. To receive this gift means a commitment to developing the same character traits that mark God's own divine nature. Peter lists here seven traits to strive for, and the final one encompasses and crowns all of the others, it's love, which according to Jesus means devoting oneself to the well-being of others no matter their response or the cost. To love, according to Peter, is to share in God's own life. Peter then states the letter's purpose. It's going to act as a memorial of his teaching that can be passed on to later generations because he's not going to be around to give it much longer in person. So before he dies, he wants to address these objections and accusations being made by the teachers who distort Jesus' teaching and that of the apostles. So Peter first addresses an accusation repeated by the skeptics present and future, namely that he and the apostles just made up all of this stuff about Jesus being risen from the dead and king of the world. Jesus isn't really going to come back one day. So Peter offers his eyewitness testimony of the powerful moment of Jesus' transformation on the mountain. Remember the story in Mark chapter 9. The apostles saw Jesus exalted as king, and his resurrection means that he's alive as king and will return to rescue our world one day. And so the future return of Jesus to bring God's kingdom, this will fulfill what all the ancient scriptures have been pointing to all along. The words of the Old Testament prophet they're not fabricated fantasies. Rather, through these human words of Scripture and through the human Jesus, God himself has spoken to us. Peter then moves on to address the threats raised by corrupt leaders in the church, and he focuses on more objections that they raise. So first, these teachers deny the idea of a final reckoning, when God's going to hold all people accountable for their choices. And this denial is what conveniently allows the teachers to ignore Jesus' teaching about money and sex, because they're making tons of profit by teaching in the churches, not to mention the fact that they're sleeping around. But Peter reminds the readers that God can and will meet rebellion with his justice. He recalls three ancient examples when God did this. He first mentions the story about the sons of God in Genesis 6 as it was interpreted in a popular Jewish work of the time called First Enoch. First Enoch says the sons of God are rebellious angels who crossed the line and slept with women, earning God's judgment. Peter then brings up the story of the ancient flood and then the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In each case, there was a rebellion that led to divine judgment. But, Peter says, God was always faithful to deliver his people, and he uses the story of Lot to provide an example. Peter then connects these ancient stories to the teacher's corrupt way of life. They too are after money and sex, they despise God's authority, and they lead other people to think that God doesn't care about moral decisions. 
He says they teach a message of Christian freedom and use it as a license to do whatever they want. And this is why Peter's going to bring up Paul's letters later on in chapter 3. It appears that these teachers have distorted Paul's message of liberation in Christ. But that's not the kind of freedom Paul meant. And Peter makes clear that these teachers are not really free. In reality, they're slaves to their bodily impulses. And the fact that they're Christians makes it even more tragic because knowing Jesus' teaching makes them doubly accountable. They have become pitiful examples of the ancient proverb about a dog returning to its vomit and a washed pig going back to the mud. Peter then addresses the reasoning behind the teacher's denial of the final reckoning. They say generations of God's people keep coming and passing away without seeing the fulfillment of their hopes. Where is this promised return of Jesus? Peter responds by showing how short-sighted this objection is. Look around, he says, at this remarkable universe that we inhabit. The fact that we exist at all means that at some moment in the past, God's word intervened in a dramatic way to bring something out of nothing and to bring order out of chaos, and he can do so again. And so the real question is, why is God taking so long? But Peter reminds us that our human conception of time is extremely limited. The long expanses of time through which God works don't fit neatly into the framework of our very short lives. These long amounts of time are actually a sign of God's patience, because each generation is offered the chance to recognize its own selfishness, to humble itself, and repent before God's generous grace. And God's grace will bring the story to a close on the day of the Lord. Here Peter draws upon the prophetic poetry of Isaiah and Zephaniah, who describe the day of God's justice as a consuming fire. Peter says, the heavens will pass away and the stoicheia will melt by fire. This is a Greek word that could refer to the elements, in which case it means the dissolution of the material universe, or more likely, it refers to heavenly bodies, in other words, the stars. That's what this word means in Isaiah chapter 34, where Peter is quoting from. And in that case, this line is a metaphor about the sky being peeled back, so to speak, before the God who sees all. And so this is why Peter says the day of the Lord will result in the earth and all its works being exposed. The ultimate purpose of God's consuming justice is not to scrap the material universe. Rather, it's to expose evil and injustice and remove it so that a new kind of heavens and earth can emerge, one that is permeated with righteousness, full of God's love and people who know and love God and love their neighbor as themselves. Peter concludes by saying this is the true Christian hope that Jesus and all the apostles have been announcing, including Paul, whose writings can be misunderstood if you rip them out of context, but all the apostles are on the same page. And so Peter ends his final address to the church. Now the tone of 2 Peter, it feels really intense, but his passion comes from a firm <coughs> conviction that God loves this world and he's determined to rescue it through Jesus. And so this means that God's love must confront and deal with the sin and injustice that ruins his beloved world. And in God's own time, he will do so, opening up a new future for humanity and for the universe itself. And so 2 Peter has a wide, expansive vision of hope for the whole world, and it challenges us to examine our everyday lives. That's what the second letter of Peter is all about. Thank you.